The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Before we get started today, I have some business to take care of. This It's pretty important before we get to our guests. July 24th is National PI Day, National Private Investigator. In support of our private investigators, IRB Search, one of my sponsors will donate a portion of their gross profits from July 24th to the National Council of Investigative and Security Services. It's so exciting to be able to announce this. And if you're an IRB Search customer and using any of their products, which is IRB Classic or IRB Focus, this is a great opportunity to support a national voice for private investigators. If you're not a customer of IRB Search, then maybe this is an opportunity to give IRB Search a try. You can learn more about their products at www.irb, let's be like boy, search.com, all one word, or call 1-800-447-2112, 1-800-447-2112. Now, uh, just to, to uh, clarify here, National Council of Investigative and Security Services is a national ag- advocacy, so I can't talk to, advocate association of private investigators and security professionals. I'm proud to be a member of that organization and a past president. If you are either a PI or a security professional, at a minimum, you should always belong to your state association first, and then join NCISS. And if you want more details, go to www.ncisss.org. Now, my guest today is Doug Carner. Audio, video, image enhancement, and authentication expert. Good morning to you, Doug. Good morning to you. Thanks so much for being on the show. This is going to be a great show. Um, But, Doug, you have an amazing background. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, in our profession, which is digital forensic um, analysis, I provide audio and video enhancement and authentication, which means that if you have a recording, either an audio recording or a video recording or an image, I have the ability to not only tell whether it has been tampered and how it's been tampered with or whether it's authentic, which gives a little more weight in the courtroom, but I also can bring out greater level of details. And this is useful when trying to recover a license plate, facial identity, or other key event Uh, issues. For example, a video that might have been shot in the dark of night uh, after the work is done can look like it was shot with a a night scope. So uh, most of my work is done uh, for litigated cases. I handle about a thousand cases a year. 
and uh, we provide services to clients uh, around the planet. And where did you learn all this great information? Well, about 20 years ago, uh, a scripting language called, uh, well, a function program called Virtual Dub came out, which allows the manipulation of video content, and filters began to get written for it to deal with issues of noise that might be there in the form of tiny little specks that interfere or, again, a video being uh, improperly illuminated. Mm. And I started to do this um, first because my sister is a prolific sender of emails and would send me images and videos, (laughs) and I started to wonder if they were authentic or not as well as wanting to be able to, to practice cleaning them up and then donating to law enforcement and helping out for um, the limited resources they had access to, to help them solve cases, primarily in Los Angeles, where my lab is located, but helping others as well. And to this day, I still contribute to innocence projects as well as uh, law enforcement agencies around the world. The, uh, from this, a uh, scripting language uh, came out called AVI Synth, and I began to write routines and make this available to others. And this uh, while I was working at system integrators designing large-scale audio and video recording systems, some of them in the millions of dollars, I was being trained by the manufacturers. And as I g- grasped a greater understanding of why these recordings were less than optimal in the first place, mm-hmm. I realized that there was a, a real opportunity to turn this into a thriving business. And so I did. And now not only do I provide the, the work directly for clients, but I'm also used by several of the enhancement companies that are out there as their silent uh, labs. So when they have the really tough challenges, they take the bows, but we're the ones who actually do the work. Amazing. Well, that's it's great, and you're you're a great resource, Doug. Um, I've known you for a while now, and you've been on this show before. So, um, so listeners, when you receive a digital recording, do you know how to tell if it's been altered? Uh, that's one of the questions that Doug's going to answer today. He's going to tell us how to detect and prove file tampering, how to prevent it. And he's going to give us some trade secrets and some sources for free software. What's better than that? So let's start out by, um, is, this a, is this tampering of evidence something that's common? It actually has been ongoing uh, for as long as there's been images. Uh, there's some famous ones, even predating the, the digital age. Um, it, there's, um, for example, in my grade school classroom, there's a very famous picture of Abraham Lincoln sitting there with his proclamation to free the slaves. Well, it turns out that that's a forgery, and it was really John really? Calhoun. It was John Calhoun's uh, body and Abraham Lincoln's face painted onto that body because there just weren't any heroic pictures of Abraham Lincoln at the time. Uh, but this was then passed along. There's pictures of, uh, uh, of you've got Hitler uh, standing there with uh, Joseph Goebbels, and then there's another picture where uh, Goebbels was removed from the picture because he'd lost favor with Hitler. Uh, oh. There's a picture of Mussolini, and at the front of the horse is the horse handler, and at the back of the horse is his, his aide, And then in a modified version, which was distributed, which has those two people removed because it made him look more heroic. Uh And I I have a feeling that, uh, well, there's probably cave drawings showing some caveman, (laughs) let's call him Kronk, 
uh, who may have had a um, uh, may have run from a saber-toothed tiger, but when he made the wall painting, it became a more heroic story. So, right, right. throughout history, there's there's a tremendous number of these, and and in fact, it's now become a pet project of myself and my peers to just pour through history and find uh, tampered recordings. And it is far more common than you might think. And oftentimes, this tampering is unintentional. It's not someone's willful act to try and manipulate it, but it is an issue where the um, uh, just improper handling has caused defects that lead to a different reality. Hmm. That's fascinating. So, and then now with the digital age, it becomes very easy to tamper. This is true. As an example, Photoshop is quite accessible to people, and... Uh with that software, they have something called content-aware, and it literally lets me uh, highlight a person or an object and then decide where I would rather it be located, including just removed completely. And Photoshop will take care of the lighting and other aspects and remove it. And to the naked eye, it appears to be a perfect job. Mm-hmm. What happens, though, is it is possible to tell. Um, in fact, to be able to determine if if that's a fake, what someone would do is the first you would look at lighting. You'd look at uh, being able to tell if the path of shadows and reflections and light makes sense. Light always travels in a straight line until it hits some substance that changes its path. Hmm. So when an object is re- removed from a scene or cloned in a scene or add it to a scene, one of the things you want to look for is to see if you can see any pathways of illumination or shadows. This can be hard to do with the naked eye. In fact, there's software to help in this endeavor. But if you're doing it with the naked eye, take a ruler out. See if it makes sense. Hmm. Look, look at the strength of the shadows. Does it make sense with the rest of the scene? Oftentimes, something will strike you as being odd, and upon further inspection, you can be able to tell. Again, it is, though, quite limited as to what can be done without the use of software, and software has matured dramatically uh, to be able to help those who are trying to, to tell the truth from fiction. So what does the software do? What, what does that allow you to go into? Well, there's several different tools out there, um, both in the audio, video, and image side. And what the software allows is for you to um, analyze the strength of illumination and the direction of the shadows. If I have a light source, let's say that a picture was taken of, of, of someone here in your audience, and they wanted to now know if this picture was authentic or not. Mm-hmm. Well, there'd be a single light source, and that single light source should cast shadows in all in one direction. Now, there'll be some reflection. There'll be reflection off of walls and other surfaces that'll also cast lighter levels of shadows. But again, if someone was to only emphasize the brighter to the darker areas, there should be a consistency in the direction in which they go. Mm -hmm. In other words, if the light source was in the upper left, then all the shadows should be in the lower right. And so the software, it's a very simple in concept that it is simply taking these these pathways, and assigning a color to them, because the human eye tells color much better than anything else. So we assigns a color 
to these pathways, and then you look and you see, do these colors all look consistent, or am I suddenly seeing a shift in color around an object, and therefore that object was placed later? And it doesn't take much of a change, maybe just a, a few degrees of angle difference, for it to become obvious that this is now an inserted object or a relocated object. Mm-hmm. That's, that's one way. Another way is the fact that when an image or a video or an audio recording is, is provided, it's usually provided in some compressed format to help it save on size. And okay. when it compresses, that compression, uh, called a codec, which stands for compression-decompression, that codec will throw away some of the information to make the size smaller. And throwing away that information, it picks items that the human eye or ear can't easily perceive. But doing that leaves behind defects, artifacts, as it were. Those artifacts are following a mathematical formula. And by analyzing the defects, the noise that it creates, you can work backwards to build back some of the detail, but you can also look at the level of noise and if the level of noise is around an object is higher, assume that it was inserted. Or in this case, let's take this example. I have a picture. It's got a picture of, of two people. Now I take a gun and I insert it in the hand of one of the people. Uh-huh. And I now resave the picture and put that out there as the new reality. Well, the two people have been compressed twice. Once by the original and second when I save the picture now with the gun. But the okay, so you're not been... you're not talking about resizing a picture. Resizing right. I'm, I'm just talking do. about saving. Yeah. It. Correct. Okay. The size stays the same. I'm just talking about the defects that are created by saving a picture when you save it as a JPEG or or some other compressed format. So now the second time it's saved, the gun has only is only being compressed once, while everything else has been compressed twice. Okay. So the gun is going to undergo more changes than the rest of the scene. So if I compress a third time, now within my control, in other words, I now receive this picture with the gun and the two people, and I compress it one more time, the rest of the scene is going to compress very little because there's not much left to squeeze out. But the gun, Hmm. now only undergoing its second compression, is going to squeeze out more details. There's going to be more changes to the gun. If I separate those two images from each other, it becomes obvious now that there's been this change. This process is called Video Error Level Analysis, or VILA. And if you just Google the term, you'll see that I'm the person who brought it to the industry, made the software that made it possible. And it's free. Anyone can do this. So any one of your listeners can just Google Video Error Level Analysis. They can do this on any image or any video. All the software to do it is free. I provide complete instructions and links to the software. Okay, that's called Video Error Level analysis. level analysis. In okay. fact, error level analysis is the process used on uh, on images. So this is just putting the word video in front of it. So, uh, Doug, you de- you developed that process? How did you do that? Well, no, that? no. Um, actually, a colleague of mine um, wrote it up a theory at a, at a Black Hat conference, and following based on what he put out there, I wanted to develop a methodology using free tools that anyone could do and make it so it was accessible. So, and there was none for video. This was only for image. So it was just proposed on video. So I found a way to do this with video and then put it together and brought it so that this, the industry could have it, so that my peers and lay pe- people could have access to being able to do this. I've got to ask you, what's a Black Hat conference? Oh, it's a conference of, of, 
of nerds. It's usually given a bad rap and seen as a hackers conference, <laughs> but it's really it's it's a conference of people who look for vulnerabilities and propose ways to fix it. And most of okay. the security measures that you know of in your cell phone, in your computer, and things like this were developed at Black Hat conferences. Mm. Uh, they're the ones who come up with the concepts of encryption and, and other things like that. Uh, and and so they they look for, you know, if something was altered, how would I know? And this was a perfect example of that. You know, that that's just amazing. That's <laughs> such good information. Um, so, you know, Doug, this is a good time to take a break. So I, uh, there's so much more to talk about. You're listening to Doug Carner. He's a video and audio forensic expert. Don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PIs Declassified. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Forensic video and audio expert Doug Carner has much to say about this expanding area of video and audio tampering. We've just been talking about video. What about audio tampering, Doug? Well, it, it's similar, but it is kind of its own world because when you deal with um, video or images, you have several dimensions. You have color and you have brightness and you also have, in the case of video, a temporal aspect, time, so that things are changing from one moment in time to another. Mm-hmm. In the case of audio, you don't have color. You do have intensity in the sense of volume, uh, but, you, um, but you do have the benefit of time as things are moving from uh, the sound is changing as the recording is playing. So, again, we can utilize that to try and tell what has been changed. 
First thing, just as we did with video, you trust your human senses. If you hear a click that sounds odd or words seem to be cut off, one has to explain that. Now, in the case of video, you can have suddenly a, a drop in a scene because the recorder may be only motion activated, and therefore it only captures when something is changing in the scene. And the same can be true with an audio recording. You may have a recorder that only records when there's sound. So, so if you're, so let me ask you real quickly. Um, so, if you're recording, say, uh, you're recording a statement from an individual as a private investigator, you don't want it to be on a voice activated. You want it to be uh, running continuously. Well, it's it's beneficial from a being able to tell what's been tampered and what hasn't. Because what happens is, if I have an audio recorder and I've set it up for voice activated recording. And I'm holding this interview, as, as you point out. And there's moments when there's going to be silence, some detective steps out of the room or whatever. Yes, it will help make the recording shorter and more concise. But the problem is each of those stop and start events, it's indistinguishable if the recorder chose to do it or if the person uh-huh. chose to do it. Uh-huh. So if you're trying to tell if something's been tampered, all of those would come across as valid tamper events. They just happen to be device-initiated rather than human-initiated. And it would be very challenging, if not impossible, for an outside expert such as myself to be able to conclude which were the cause on any given one of those. Because from a forensic point of view, they're indistinguishable. Uh Now, they are detectable. And, in fact, it used to be that only manual recorders, the old kind where you had to play and stop and you had a cassette tape in them, Uh that you could tell that those had been stopped. But it's now just as easy to tell with the digital recorders as well. And the reason is it's because while the technology has advanced dramatically, the recording element really hasn't. It's gotten smaller, but microphones still work the same way. Uh A direct current or DC voltage is supplied to the recording element. And then once it's come into balance, it reflects sound as an AC voltage, an alternating current. And that, in fact, is what you see often when you watch shows. People will show a visual representation Uh of that AC as a bouncing up and down line. Well, it takes a moment. It takes a couple hundredths of a second, typically about two one-hundredths of a second, for that to balance out. And once that balances out, um, then this the fluctuations are normal. But until then, there's a ramp-up or ramp-down appearance to it, and that's a telltale sign that you've had a digital recorder stop and start. Again, mm-hmm. it only lasts hundred or two one-hundredths of a second, but it's fully detectable, and almost any software can let you zoom in. But whether that's caused by someone choosing to pause the recorder or whether it's caused by the voice activated, that would be very hard to tell apart. So you're right. So, you do want to have a solid, consistent recording. Okay. So it begs the question, if you have a voice-activated recorder and that, if that kind of situation is happening, are there other ways that you can tell if that recording has been tampered with? Well, you're kind of limited at that point, but what you can still look for is you want to know if, for example, um, if someone took a second recorder, Now, let's say that I have recording one, and it's a recording of you and I having a discussion. Mm -hmm. And now I take a second recorder, and I play recorder one and have recorder two making a new recording. And I choose what 
sections of recording when to play and in what order to make my own version. Uh-huh. Well, that, that would be detectable because it'd be highly unlikely that recording, recorder one would always be placed back down in the exact same way. So the sound might be slightly la- louder, slightly quieter. There might be defects that come across from the, if you've ever stopped and started a recorder, you know sometimes the voice doesn't play spot on. It sounds a little weird for a fraction of a second. Mm-hmm. Um, so these kind of defects can be looked for. If someone simply went into software and edited the audio, if they simply took the recording and said, okay, I'm just going to splice it around and move this over to here and over to there. Well, what's unrealized by most people is, in the room where you're sitting right now, and in fact where all your audience is sitting, there are 60 hertz outlets. And in other parts of the world, there's 50 hertz outlets. Those outlets are actually making a sound. And since microphones pick up as low as 20 hertz, it's actually recording the huh. uh, silent sound of the harmonics from those outlets. There's a hum, a, a 60 hertz hum that's getting picked up here in the U.S., it's incredibly quiet and has to be amplified sometimes a million times, but it's there. And it makes a perfect sine wave. Every 60th of a second, it goes through a complete cycle. So we can look at that, and if we suddenly see that one of those waves is longer or shorter, then we know that there's been an edit there, because it's highly unlikely that that they'll just coincidentally pick a moment in time that'll have that line up. Mm -hmm. Even... Even in video recordings, this can get picked up because oftentimes there'll be an audio channel sort of created by the recording device, even though there's no microphone, and it's picking up the electronic harmonics. So this can, audio can be an easy way to tell if a video has been tampered as well as the audio recording itself. Fascinating. So can you trace a recording back to the original process? Absolutely. Absolutely. What has become a really exciting technology is power plants located. And let's just take the U.S. And there's thousands and thousands of power plants across the U.S. Well, they don't all operate at exactly 60 hertz because they're mechanical devices. So some will operate a thousandth of a second slower or a thousandth of a second faster, but they aren't going to keep exactly 60 hertz. So it's important for them to keep records of what speed it's actually working at so that they can know if there's any technical problems, how to fix them. And so they've been keeping a log for decades about what the periodically saying, okay, now the frequency is this. Well, it turns out that we can use this as a detective tool. And now that we've got our 60 hertz cycle in a recording, we can look at exactly what frequency it is. And if it comes out as 60.002 hertz instead of 60, we can say, okay, what power plants were at 60.002 in the U.S. and when? Now we've narrowed it down to a very small set of geographical locations and times when a recording could have been made. Now we simply look at evidence of the recording and say, okay, it's proposed to have been made in the month of September in the year 2014 in this city. Well, it turns out the power plants in that city were not running at that frequency at that time. Therefore, this recording was made at some other place or some other time. And where, and do, can, you get, where do you get that information about the power plants? Uh, databases have been made and are now available to the forensic community. So huh. forensic analysts can now go to and, and access these, these libraries of tables because it's just another set of data and, and use it 
to be able to tell. And sometimes it's unique. Sometimes it'll be, you know, 60.0031, and there's only one time and one place where that was, and instantly you now have uh, new data. Because normally recordings will have what's called metadata, which just okay. means data about data. And this is where if you take an image with a cell phone, it might be embedded with the geographic location where this person was at the time the picture was taken, and even the settings of the camera. And the same is true with video recordings. Audio recordings usually have much less information, but they'll have some about the device, but they rarely have geographic there. But using this information now, we're able to add a geographic component to that metadata and have one more fact. And that metadata is really important. I had a case where um, a fight had taken place and was recorded on an iPhone um, up in a, in a mountainous area. Uh-huh. And the person approached and said, I believe that this recording was edited and that something was trimmed out of it. Well, you look at the metadata, and it's all there intact. It's got the geographic location, the time, and everything. So you take those geographic coordinates, you plug them into your software, and wait a minute, it's not coming up as the mountainous area. It's coming up as a particular home about two and a half miles from there. Really? So I bring this up to the client, and he points out that the address I gave of that home happens to be the address of one of the parties of the other side that was involved in the fight. What and a coincidence. Per- <laughs> and the person who lives there happens to be an expert at editing with Apple software. Oh, wow. So what happened was when they brought it into their computer, all the metadata stayed the same, but the GPS coordinates got updated to the now current coordinates. Interesting. Huh. People think they're so smart, huh? <laughs> well, the problem is there's, it's, it's very much like DNA. I mean, there's a tremendous parallel between the way that a person forensically shows up and looks at blood spatter and, and the DNA evidence of footprints and other things out of physical crime mm-hmm. as when working with the digital medium. In fact, it's what makes this profession so interesting is that while I work about 1,000 cases a year, no two are the same. The methodology for cleaning up a recording or the methodology for determining if something is original or has been tampered with is always a new puzzle, and it makes this a constantly exciting and evolving process. It is, uh, it is an exciting process for sure. So, so what can you do to prevent tampering, Doug? Well, there's a couple things. First off, I tell people that um, if you take a picture and you want to have your picture be authentic from the beginning, Use the camera raw mode if your camera supports it. In other words, if it offers to save space by making it into a JPEG, but it has an option that will have it saved with no compression in its, in its full form, there's usually an option for camera raw, R-A-W. Uh-huh. And in this one, it's saved in a proprietary format to that camera manufacturer. And each camera manufacturer has their own. Now, okay. cell phones usually do not offer this. But there's apps that you can download that will give you a camera raw option to the phone. So if you have a smartphone, just download one of those apps, and now it's being saved in, in the proprietary format of your particular phone. And this in itself provides a certification of authenticity because the means in which to view a raw image is out there in tons of programs, example Photoshop, but the ability to write to this is a closely guarded secret. And in and fact, what would, you download... Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry, Go what ahead. would those apps be called? 
Well, just look for if you look for camera raw, you'll find that they're proprietary to the manufacturer. And then, so okay. if, as an example, you have a Samsung phone, then you, Samsung may offer an app to have this proprietary raw format for their their Samsung phones. Same with LG. So if you um, say Apple, for example, if you put in uh, camera raw in your app. Uh, if you search for camera, if you search for camera raw, I know that on the Google phones it's called Google Play. I'm I'm not sure. I think it's Apple Store. I think is for the Apple. And the, yeah, under Apple Store. Yeah, and if you if you search for for a camera raw, um, and I haven't done this on Apple, so I don't know what will come up. But if you don't find an app specific to your phone, like if Apple doesn't offer a camera raw, but I think they do, but if if they don't, then there may be a third-party camera raw, which is just as valid. You just want something that takes a picture and and sort of wraps that picture in a protective envelope that ca- that can't be altered, so that that way, if it's presented as evidence in a court case, uh, you can say this is certified by this manufacturer that the picture at the time of taking is genuine and cannot be manipulated because there's no other means in which to save it in this format. And all the metadata and everything is embedded in here, Your Honor, so that this shows that this picture was taken at this time and at this geographic location. Okay, I just looked up Camera Raw on my iPhone and Apple Store, and there are apps. Okay. Just so So, you know. (laughs) So that is one way to do it. Now, another way to do it is after the fact. Not as good, but at least it stops tampering from that point. As I tell all my attorney clients, to um, get a hash value program. Now, hash value is where it takes all of the data. That means the image or audio data, along with the metadata, along with any other notes that are embedded in the file. Just take all the ones and zeros that make up that file and turn it into this 32-character long string that's alphanumeric. You've often seen these encrypted-looking serial numbers that sometimes come with products, or you have to type in a a coded number to activate software. It's much Mm -hmm. like that, but it's even longer. And this uniquely identifies a file, and it works on anything. It can be a Word document, an Excel spreadsheet, a zip file, an image, an audio, a video. It doesn't matter. And it assigns this unique serial number to it. And it doesn't matter what software you use. If you use, like if MD5 is the most common of these formats. So whatever okay. software you use to create an MD5 hash value, you'll always come up with the exact same number. So it doesn't matter if each person's using different software. If it's to create an MD5 number, the number that it will generate will be identical. They can match it up and go, yes. The file he's working on and the file I'm working on are indistinguishable. They're both, in essence, originals. Okay. And a, one of the programs that I like for it uh, to do this kind of um, hash valuing is called Hash My Files. And in your show, I believe you're putting a link at your website listing for the show to download that software. Uh, actually, uh, I'm just going to have people contact me if, if they want um, the... Um, sites that you're giving, they can just contact me at francie.kaler, K-O-E-H-L-E-R, at gmail.com. So that's an excellent one to provide those hash values. And once the attorney does it, as soon as he's got the evidence, that way he can now transmit his 
his evidence to experts by way of uploading them or emailing them. And he doesn't yeah. have to worry about any challenges about chain of custody. Were they corrupted? You know, did they get affected by being transmitted over the Internet? All of this goes away because the hash value certifies its authenticity, at least to the first time that it was hashed. And the odds of being able to change it are astronomical. There are no known cases of real-world files. You can manufacture one, but no real-world files where any two files uh, are, are variations of the same and yet come up with the same hash value. In fact, the odds are so dramatic, you have better odds of winning the Powerball lottery four times in a <laughs> row off the same dollar than you do of being able to alter a file oh. and have it come up with the same hash value. Wow, that's fascinating. So um, why, you know, you're talking about cell phones. So uh, I found that if I use my, and I'll plug Apple, my iPhone for pictures, it comes out better than my digital camera. So why are they so clear? And then why do, when people do surveillance recordings, they are not so clear? Well, I mentioned earlier the word codec for compression-decompression, and this is a set of computer instructions that tell the computer, here's how I want you to squeeze down the file size. You know, when you think about an image, when someone sends you a JPEG image that's, that's been compressed, it may not be that large. It may be you know, 50 kilobytes in size, 100 kilobytes in size, maybe a couple megabytes. And when you get a music file, same thing. You'll get an MP3, which has been compressed, and that may be a couple of megabytes in size. But if it was raw, if it was uncompressed, if nothing had been discarded and you had the full size of this, that image would be many megabytes, and that uh -huh. audio file could be hundreds of megabytes. So if you think about that, a video, which now is several images in succession, easily would get into the gigabytes, which stands for thousands of megabytes, or the terabytes, which stands for millions of megabytes. And so... The need to compress is there simply because of the sheer size. Something but then there's a question. <laughs> but then there's a question of how to compress, because you can compress a little bit where you throw away very little of what someone would notice, which is what happens with your cell phone images or with an MP3 audio file that sounds fine. But you say, well, that's not enough. I need to compress more. I've got a video recorder. It's got 16 channels that it's recording at the same time. It's doing mm -hmm. it 24 hours a day, and it has to do this for 10 days. I can't just have a little compression. I have to make this compression extreme. I have to squeeze out so much it is going to affect the way things look. And mm -hmm. if you've ever seen videos in the old days of YouTube, and, or even when your cable TV goes out or your satellite TV, you notice it's a mosaic of a bunch of little squares called tiles. Mm -hmm. And that's because that's how video is actually saved. It's not saved like an image is saved. Instead, it's broken up into a bunch of little squares, and then each of those squares is compressed independent of the square next to it. And it's compressed to a, such an extreme, extreme level that sometimes you can see the boundary lines of these squares. You can see this mosaic quality to a video when you're looking at surveillance video. Hmm. So. For all those reasons, and the fact that it has to throw away lighting levels and say, well, there's, I'm only going to have 30 shades of light that I'm going to retain, so there's going to be a distinct change from this level to this level. And anything that's close to dark, I'm just going to make it black. And anything that's close to white, I'm just going to make it white because people really can't tell the difference. And, and so this, the compression algorithm can squeeze out so much content that we are done, you go, 
that's really bad. That's like looking through a piece of fabric to try and mm. see what's mm-hmm. going on in this scene. Mm. Interesting. You know, Doug, this is a great time to take a break um, because, because there's more to talk about about this. That's the voice of Doug Carner, video and audio forensic expert. Stay tuned. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. We've been discussing, oh my gosh, discussing so many exciting things with Doug Carner here, video and audio expert. Uh, So, Doug... We were just talking about surveillance recordings and how they get compromised because they have to be compressed. So many, so much information all in one place, um, and that creates some kind of noise, doesn't it? Correct. So, what what can be done about that? Anything? Well, well, from an end user's point of view, you want, they want noise to go away. If it's artifacts that are little specks of light that you see when you're looking at a dark recording, or it's clicks or it's machinery sound in the background or dishes being moved in a restaurant from a covert recording. You want those to go away, and there's plenty of ways for us forensic analysts to make that information, that unwanted information, disappear. Uh, Almost magically, we can make dark scenes look like they were filmed in the daytime. We can make noisy scenes and have the noises suppressed and the human voices retained. We can have background voices made louder, and in fact, there's new tools being developed now to be able to separate out voices so that you can only hear the people you want to hear. Um, there's just tremendous amount of things happening to clean it up. But from a forensic analyst side, we love the noise because it tells us so much about the original recording. Well, we and would, this... would that be oh, considered tampering? 
Well, the noise, if, it depends how the noise was created, and that's actually how we use it to tell if tampering occurred. We can tell whether it's natural noise or artificially created okay. noise or created as a byproduct of tampering. We can use this noise to tell us signs of what compression was used so that we can restore the recording back to its better quality. In other words, what the camera saw versus what the recorder saved. There mm -hmm. is so much we can do with noise. It is the thing we love the most. Uh, and mm -hmm. allows us to do our work. So we can make it go away for what's given to the court, and we can use it to our advantage to process those recordings for the clarity as well as determining the facts. So, Doug, when you, if you are called as a witness, uh, you've done what you've explained here. You're called as a witness. Is this the kind of thing you explain to the jury? Correct. I'll put it in layman's term and let them know. As an example, when I describe how when a file is saved and as a video and then it's resaved again, it's like a fax of a fax, and how that takes away critical information with each generation of compression. So okay. I often have to bring it down into very easy terms, but there's always an analogy that can be used to describe a very complex process. Okay, so everybody watches CSI. Is that realistic? Do they act, can you actually do things that you see on CSI? on, uh, you know, enhance, enhancing uh, photographs and facial details and all that kind of stuff? Well, some of my peers swear at CSI for <laughs> pushing a fantasy element that you could zoom in so much that you could look into the reflection of someone's eyeball and see the killer's face. And if that was true, you could take a, a picture with a Polaroid camera of the night sky and you wouldn't need the Hubble telescope. So obviously that level isn't right. But on the other hand, I love it because to me it pushes the technological envelope because as people's expectations goes up, then there's a lot of effort put to make the technology get as close to that as possible. So much so, in fact, that um, on August 7th and 8th, there's going to be a digital forensic summits at UC Santa Barbara big yes. conference, yeah. and uh, this is going to, and it's open to anyone who wants to, to attend. There's details if you uh, just go to abreboard.com. That stands for American Board of Recorded Evidence. So abreboard.com, and you'll see a link there for the summit. And this is where us nerds go to learn more about it, but it's also where lay people go to learn more about the, the field. And mm -hmm. there's an award given. There'll be two stars from the CSI show that are going to be there receiving an innovations award because really? what they did on the CSI show um, it really has pushed the technological envelope and helped move the science forward. So uh, shows like CSI and others, they do help move the technological um, destination farther along. And what was it that they did that they're getting an award for? Well, their episodes, they always tried to make a point. It was um, uh, Wellman and, and Berman, the, 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 you had people who were playing the, the, the um, forensics expert on, uh -huh. um, on the show, and I, I'm trying to remember what, what roles they played in there. I just know them by their faces. Uh, but they, they always tried to make sure that what they were depicting was forensically accurate, and they involved people from the ABRE, the American Board of Recorded Evidence, with the shows to make uh -huh. sure that what they did was stay true to what is scientifically possible or close to being possible versus going off on a wild tangent. And we really appreciate that because it meant that they were helping to educate the public as to where the technology is and where it's heading. 
That's refreshing. Actually, that's very refreshing. Well, that's exciting, and uh, we have been talking about this, this summit on, on this show, as you know, Doug, uh, August 7th and 8th in Santa Barbara, at University of California, Santa Barbara, uh, and there are many experts on all kinds of forensic areas, so it's a, it's a pretty exciting conference. Uh, Correct. So I highly so recommend it, it. Beyond just David Berman and John Wellner from the CSI show, there's also going to be... You've got uh, uh, forensic accounting, you've got forensic psychology, you've got homeland security, you've got the uh, American College of Forensic Examiners, and, uh, and you've got integrative medicine. I don't think I've left anyone out, but this tremendous range of forensic science all converging at the campus for these two days. Yeah, it's going to be a, a exciting two days for sure. So... Um... So what are the, back to court testimony and that kind of thing, what are the do's and don'ts for the courtroom? Well, the important thing is this. It is important for any forensic expert to to be neutral to the evidence. When you see television shows and even in real life when experts get involved in testifying as to the meaning or content of recording, they've actually stepped beyond the bounds of what they should do. For example, I'm the person who cleaned up the video recording in the George Zimmerman, Trayvon Martin case. But you'll find no interviews from me discussing anything about whether or not I felt there was a wound on the back of Zimmerman's head or if his nose was broken, because Mm -hmm. it's not my role to do that. I'm not supposed to become part of the evidence. But there were plenty of my peers who felt the need to take my work and and start drawing uh, meaning behind it as if somehow they were doctors. So... One of the don'ts is you don't go beyond where your skill set is. As a forensic, uh, digital forensic analyst, my function is to simply be able to prove what facts are true or not true mm-hmm. or be able to restore details and be able to explain how I did it. We are triers of fact, and stepping beyond that is a huge no. And if you find yourself in the jury and you hear an expert stepping beyond their capabilities, keep that in mind. Because whatever the expert is, you want to make sure that they don't become the evidence, that they're simply staying within the realm of where their spe- special training is. That's, uh, that's great advice. So how can people uh, who are interested in this area learn more about the kinds of things that you know, Doug? Well, as I mentioned, the conference is a great location. There's also at my website, which is ForensicProtection.com. So that's ForensicProtection.com. If they go there, I have at the very bottom of the website one that says Quick Links. And if they click on that, there's all kinds of educational resources that will teach them. It will teach them how all these things are done, uh, where they can get the tools to be able to do them, uh, software suggestions to download, you'll find that most of the software that you want to use is free or near free. One of the best software packages out there that I can recommend uh, for cleaning up video is called Video Cleaner, and it's at videocleaner.com. It is the okay. world's most popular forensic video enhancement software. And uh, I, I have to say, uh, to, to, to be factually accurate there, I'm also the lead programmer on the project. So obviously <laughs> yeah, I, I, have a, I, have a certain, I have a certain affinity for the software. But it is the world's <laughs> most popular software. 
and I give it away free to everyone. You don't okay. have to be a forensic expert, and it's easy to use. You just move some sliders along, and you'll be able to clean up most videos. Can't do everything that us experts can do, but it can get you about 70 to 80% of the way there, and oftentimes that's all you need to pull up a license plate or facial detail. Okay. All right. Well, you know, there's a, something's come up. Um, criminal defense investigators who are working with attorneys often have to give uh, a video a videotape interview to the defendant in an audio format. They have to convert it to an, an MP3. And um, they're also not allowed to provide any information in that video that's personal identifying information. For example, if somebody just happens to give their address or date of birth or telephone number, that has to be taken out. Is there any, uh, anything you would recommend to do that with? Well, to, what you're talking about there is to be able to obscure something, yeah. Uh, which, uh, which, by the way, you can do with uh, Video Cleaner. It has some tools to do that, but lots of other software. Photoshop has a tool to do that with images. And there's a tremendous amount of software out there that has the ability to, to blur and to uh, obscure things. And in audio, uh, likewise, there's tons of tools like Free Tool Audacity, which is an audio editing tool, has tools for redaction. So being able to blur or, or redact something, that's actually fairly easy to do. But then okay. the person has to be prepared to justify why they did it and what they did in the courtroom so it doesn't look like manipulation was done. It wouldn't be for the courtroom. It would only be for the, the defendant. Yeah, then, then absolutely. I mean, I've had cases where I've had videos in a hospital, and, they, and, and the patients, the other patients need to have their faces obscured. Yeah. And I've had cases where you've described where just the audio channel is, is, is retained, and again, certain changes are made. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Doug, we have uh, not very long before the close of our show here. Do you have some other um, websites or sources that you'd like to provide to folks? Here Absolutely. On the if, you, if you think you have a photo that's been tampered with, uh, a free tool is called Photo Forensics, spelled F-O-T-O, forensics.com. Uh, that's a great one that you, you have to upload the image, but it'll come back and it'll do error level analysis. Remember, we spoke earlier about video error level analysis. If right. you do want the video error level analysis, that is also available at my website, ForensicProtection.com. Go ahead and go okay. to the quick links and you'll see all everything you need is listed there, the software and the instructions. Okay. Um, and... Uh, I think that pretty well covers it. I remember to check out the abreboard.com if you want to know more about the Digital Summit. And, uh, uh, and, and then they ha you have, hash my files. And you have a, uh, a, a lecture uh, link on your website, too, that people might be interested Correct. in. Correct. It'll also to. be under the quick links. They can, they can see some of the info from the lectures I've done in the past that will also give you additional insight. I mean, there's a lot of free educational resources that are located there <clears throat> because my feeling is I really – it's the same reason I made Video Cleaner. I, I want to make the ability to know the truth accessible to everyone, regardless of their need or their budget. Oh, that's great. Uh, Doug, thanks for sharing all the tips. Uh, great show, great information. Uh, you're just a, a wealth, a well of information. I'll put it that way. More than a wealth. You're a well of information. So <laughs> thanks for being on the show. And I certainly will be seeing you in Santa Barbara at that uh, digital summit. That's going to be uh, very interesting. So, 
folks who are listening to this show. I hope you got a lot out of it. Join me again next week when we declassify more real stories from real investigators every Thursday morning, 12 noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. Thank you so much for listening. It's TI's Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel.